Well, we are continuing our study of Luke in our series, Christmas Invitation, as Jesus has been inviting people to the ultimate Christmas party. And he's actually, it's a very interesting part of uh, the book of Luke, because Jesus is at a party, and he's teaching about a party, and what it means to invite people into God's presence in a significant way. So if with us last week, Drew mentioned that part of being at this party is Jesus discussing that the ultimate party is the kingdom of God, a place where you humble yourself so that God will exalt you. And in Luke chapter 14, a guy's listening to this, we don't know if it's a guy, a person at the party is listening to this and says, wow, when one of those sat with the table with him, heard him say these things, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's not just Jesus' teaching that there's something about him listening saying, well, I know what the kingdom of God's really like. It's like a dinner party. Boy, it'd be so great to eat bread in the kingdom of God when the Messiah's here. This idea that God, the ultimate expression of God's kingdom here on earth and in the future is a party might not be the first thing you think of when you think of Christianity. may not be the first thing you thought about growing up in church. That the ultimate expression of the kingdom of God is eating and dining with and having a party with God. But for Jesus, that was very clear in his teaching. In fact, this idea of the messianic banquet as an expression of the kingdom of God, it came directly out of Isaiah. So before you think of the Last Supper, the Last Supper wasn't the primary party or dining metaphor for the Jews and Christians. It was actually out of Isaiah. It said, the Lord of hosts is going to make for all people a feast of choice pieces. And that feast of wine on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And in that day when you're feasting with the Messiah, here's what he's going to do. See if you recognize this. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him and we will be glad. We will rejoice in his salvation. And many of those themes are picked up in the book of Revelation where death is defeated. It's a place of a marriage supper of the lamb, a gathering together. But before the book of Revelation... And before the Gospels, in the book of Isaiah, there was a hungering for a future time that you would dine with God. And not just in the future, but imagine this Christmas season, God's inviting you to dine with Him. Maybe we lost a friend last week of the church, and maybe this is a year that you've lost someone you care about. And dining with God is sitting at the table with Him and experiencing His comfort. Maybe the banquet this year is you've got some big decisions to make relationally or career-wise and sitting and dining with him at the kitchen table saying, God, Jesus, I really need some help with some wisdom. Hand me a choice piece of wisdom. Boy, I need some some unconditional love. I felt really beat up this last week, this last month, this last Thanksgiving gathering. God is inviting us to be part of a messianic banquet then in the future and now. 
In fact, that was a common practice. We didn't know a lot about it until the mid-1900s when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the middle of the, the Qumran Dead Sea area, not only do we find copies of the scripture, but we found copies of what the group that was copying the scriptures were doing. They were called the Essenes. And they were actually writing, and on one of the manuscripts we found, one QSA, it actually describes the practice they would have there in Qumran waiting for the Messiah to come. And they would actually act out the Messianic banquet. They'd sit low to the ground with a small table, and they would actually act out, this is what it's going to be like when the Messiah comes. We're going to be together, friends and family, choice meets, and and they'd be eating together and having a party together, saying, this is what it's like when Messiah comes. You sit and dine with him, and party with him, and talk about him, and enjoy each other's relationships. Now, this was so important that N.T. Wright... A Bible scholar said, if you look through the Gospels, eight times Jesus is doing his teaching, this being one of them, he teaches while sitting at a table and teaches for a while. It's one of those wink, wink, elbow, elbow things Jesus is doing to say, you know how you've been looking for the Messiah who will bring you what you need at at a table, at a party, at a banquet? Huh, let me do my teaching while sitting at the table and at a banquet. Just another way of him showing and claiming that he is the coming Messiah. And so God is inviting you to a party. God is inviting you to a banquet. God is also inviting your friends to a banquet. He's saying, I want everyone to be in my kingdom. I want everyone to know about my kingdom. And Jesus at this party will describe a future party that's about God's heart to have dinner with us, to have supper with us, to dine with us. And if God's inviting you to dinner, and if God's cooking, like God's making the meal, man, you don't want to miss this one. And there is no excuse for missing supper, right? Especially if God's inviting, especially if God's the cook. There's no excuse for missing that. And yet, if you look at my calendar, how often do I make excuses for not dining with God, not having a time of prayer with Him daily, not inviting him into my chaos or inviting him into my decisions or inviting him into my grief. There should be intellectually no excuse for missing supper, but man, I make them all the time. So this parable and future teaching of Jesus really wrestles with this idea of the excuses we make for missing supper with Jesus. The first thing we need to do is we need to confess our excuses. Right out of the man saying, be great to eat in the kingdom... Jesus says, then he said to them, well, let me tell you a story about a certain man. He was going to give a great supper. And he invited many, many people to the great supper. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, ding, 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 come and get it. All things are being made new. All things are prepared. Come and join us for the meal. They're ready. It's time. But they all... All of them, every single person invited, with one accord, they were all sitting in a Honda, apparently. (laughs) They all, in one accord, began to make excuses. All of them have a similarity that they make the same thing. They're going to sound different, but they're actually one, as you'll see in a moment. They make excuses. The first said to him, hey, um, I'd love to come to the party, but uh, I, I, um, I, I, just, um, I just got a piece of land that I bought. And you know, you buy a land, you've got to go check it out. So I'm going to have to go, go and see it. 
I, I would just ask that I'll catch you next time at the party. Can I be excused? The second one said, Ooh, would love to be there, God. I know you got a big party. Sounds great. But I just have, same phrase, I have bought five yoke of oxen. And what are oxen? Like bulls. So he's talking about a pair of bulls. So you just got a pair of bull with a pair of bulls in it. This is an incredible story. We got Honda Accords. We got a parable in a parable. It's pretty amazing, actually. He just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. You, know, you can't buy oxen and not test it. I asked to have me excused. Still another said, well, I have married a wife, and therefore I can't come. Didn't even give further explanation. It's like, that's a given. So the servant comes back and reports these things to the master, and the master of the house is angry. Now, why is he angry? Is God against buying property? No. Is God against getting oxen? No. Is God against marriage? Of course not. So what's he angry about? He's angry that the people have prioritized this good thing over this great thing. This is the banquet. This is what life is about. This is my presence. This is what I prepared for. This is what... When you compare your five oxen to what I'm offering you, you're going to go, why did I choose the oxen? When you say, well, I got to have some time with my wife, I said, inviting my wife to the banquet... Oh my goodness, you've prioritized or given weight to a good thing and not given full weight or glory to a great thing. That's why I'm angry. Your priorities are out of whack. And though these excuses all look different, the oxen, the land, and the wife, they're actually the same. Commentators note it's I have, I have, I have something new. That our new stuff becomes a distraction for the God stuff. Oh, under the Christmas tree. Have you seen what I got? I'm so caught up in in, in materialism. I'm so caught in trying to manage this new thing, this new endeavor, that I've lost touch with God's presence. I've busied myself to death. And the problem is none of these three characters would say that these are illegitimate excuses. These are legitimate, well-articulated. Yeah, I, I got this going on. And Jesus, this passage only gets more challenging, by the way. He says, your excuses that sound legitimate to you, you need to confess them as what they are excuses. God, I have prioritized something besides your kingdom. And though it sounds legitimate, it's an excuse for not prioritizing you. And God is angry, not because God's ticked off that, you know, you're not, you're wasting his time. He's angry for your sake that you don't know what really matters. I have comfort, I have convenience, and I'm not sure your presence really fits into my calendar. I had one of those moments about two weeks ago. I felt like God had a, uh, was inviting me into his kingdom, and I didn't really want to go into his kingdom. I didn't really want to dine with him. And one of the presents that God was offering me is he really wanted me to talk to my brother. I didn't really want to talk to my brother. Because every time I talk to my brother, he tells me some new thing I've done wrong. That's pretty much the only time he calls. Well, I felt like God was still prompting me. He's saying, Chad, you may not like it, but I want you to stop making excuses for putting this off, and I want you to engage with your brother. Isn't my presence about reconciling with people? 
isn't my presence about reaching out to unreasonable people, which you were? Then I want you to do the same. I've done a lot of work this year internally on my inner pleaser and not being afraid of conflict. But I still did not want to have this conversation. And I knew the subject. The subject was why I did not invite my brother to my daughter's wedding. That was the subject. And that was true. I didn't invite him. So we get on the phone and I'll summarize an hour conversation this way. Ryan, is this a conversation about how you and I can move forward, have more time in each other's life? Because I'm excited about that. Or is this a punitive, Chad, you've done something wrong again conversation? Because I'll have that, but I want to be prepared. It was the former, but it ended up with the latter, but it ended up with the former. Why did you not invite me to the wedding? And I gave him five reasons, but the, the, uh, the crux of it was this. I didn't think you'd even be interested. I said, have you talked to, interacted with, texted, or called my daughter in the last decade? No. When I asked my daughter if we should invite you and the chaos you bring in by accusing me of things all the time, which I wouldn't have said a year ago, God's doing some great work in me. I want to have a relationship with you, Ryan, but I'm also going to speak some truth. You ask for an explanation, I'll give you an explanation. I said, my daughter said, and I quote, why would I invite somebody to my wedding who has shown no interest in my life? He said, I know. I, I, I get it. I said, now, Ryan, if what you're telling me is that you want to start having a relationship with my daughter, you're missing out. You are missing out on my daughter and my son. My son is a lot like you. And the things I love about my son are the things I love about you. And I, I actually grieve that you don't know. And you don't know Quinn at all. You've never met him. And so the last three weeks, because of a very tough conversation involving grace and truth, the last three weeks, we've been texting back and forth and communicating. We sort of five years ago reconciled where we could talk, and, but I was pretty much the primary initiator. And he goes, I get it. I get it. I've dropped the ball. But man, I did not want to step into that gift God gave me. Didn't feel like a gift at all. But because I entered it in prayer and worked really, really hard to reconcile and really, really hard to hear his perspective, I apologized for a few things I thought were legitimate. And suddenly this Christmas... Instead of making excuses for putting it off and why he's unreasonable and why his perspective is wrong, and in a lot of ways it may be, I said, God, I want to I sit down and have a banquet with my brother the same way you had a banquet with me when I was unreasonable. So confess your excuses of how God this Christmas might want you to reconcile, to forgive, to initiate, to come near. But secondly... The parable here is the fact that Jesus invited the Jewish nation. God's invited the Jewish nation to know him, and they didn't come to the party, those who were invited. So the second phrase he uses here is to compel the excluded. All right, well, let, everybody's invited then. Make sure everybody knows. We want to make sure the room is full. Go out quickly to the streets, to the lanes of the city. Bring in the poor. Bring in the maimed. Bring in the lame. Bring in the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you've commanded. But there's still room. The banquet. Jesus wants heaven full. And the message of the church, the message of Christmas is that we go tell it on the mountain. That we tell anyone and everyone 
You are invited to this banquet. You are invited to have peace with God now and ultimate peace in the future. Forgiveness with God. Approval from God. This is what Christmas is about. This is what the message of God is all about. This is what you're invited to. God with you in this moment. And as Christians, we're called not to become a holy huddle about ourselves, but to go out and bring in. And by doing that, we help the poor and the impoverished. That's why this last month we've redone our giving tree this year and we've seen our giving double or triple of the ways we're helping. And that giving tree we've aligned to all the missions we do year-round. So 872 families at City Gospel that we go down to twice a, a month throughout the year, sometimes more, 872 families got gifts because people in our congregation, people like you and I, went to the giving tree and bought a, a present. Interparish Ministries. I think there was 30 or 50, 50 families adopted, and they said, wow, you can take more? Wow, and they, they, more and more families are going to have a Christmas. It was 30 for interparish ministries, and so they're bringing some more. And then Happy Church, right now, my daughter, my son-in-law, uh, Marcus, and a team are down at Happy Church right now in Kentucky, one of the poorest areas of the country, and they're distributing 50 gifts right now to families because each one of us felt compelled to give. And why would we do that? Because when you show people that... You're not about yourself, you're about others, serving other people, loving other people, caring for other people. People are drawn to that. What what motivates you? Wow, I want to be part of that. And we don't say it's about me trying to be a good person. It's because God was generous to me, I want to be generous to others. Because God served me, I want to serve others. We go out so we can bring in. And certainly that's true of people who are under-resourced. The poor, maimed, lame, and blind. But it certainly applies also to spiritually poor, lame, and blind. Because just as the the Jews had rejected Jesus and his message, the Gentiles, we, you and I, are the spiritually poor, blind, and maimed. We got brought in because of the invitation. So there's a spiritual aspect of this as well, that as a church, we're supposed to go out and bring in those who don't believe the way we do, who don't believe in the Bible or Jesus. This is what we call evangelism. We go out and we bring in. It's one of the unique things. I'm not sure we realize how unique a time in history we're in. Go call most of your friends around the United States, around the world, and ask them how their church is doing. And most of them are going out of business. They're just trying to keep the doors open. There hasn't been a new person who's come in a long time. These are faithful people who love Jesus and love God. But they're going out of business. There's not evangelism going on or people being baptized. Yet God has continued, for whatever reason, to keep his humble hand upon us, to continue to use us and our services to draw people in, to go out and bring in. Why are we doing nine Christmas Eve services? Would it be easier to do six or four? Yeah. But we're going to go out because we know Christmas is a unique time that people will come and hear a message about the gospel. And so we're doing nine services this year. Why do we give away free CDs? So that you can use it as a tool to go out and bring in. Why are we trying to raise $750,000 this year to put our services on video? Because where are people today? As you'll see in a moment. They're on the internet. So that you can use the video service we have. I have had three people in the last couple weeks. Oh, I'm not going to be for the Christmas Eve services. Anyway, we could live stream it. Maybe next year. When we get the equipment in place. And we don't do that just for our own sake. We're trying to create tools to go out and bring in. And Jesus says, a church and individuals, we should be about building relationships that go out and bring in. 
For some of that's personally, how can I get better at starting spiritual conversations with people I know? I've got to learn how to do that if I'm going to go out and bring in. Because look what it says. There is still room. God wants the room full. I was listening to a conversation with uh, Boss Rutten. He's the UFC uh, champion of the world. Had success. He had everything going well for him. But he got to be friends with Kevin James. Kevin James Mall Cop, the king of queens, if you don't remember him, or uh, uh, Here Goes the Boom, they were in a movie together. Well, Kevin James is a follower of Jesus, and he believes in the Bible. And he got to be friends with Boss Root, and he says, Hey, um, I don't know if you're ever interested in coming to my house sometime for cigars and beers, but let me just chat a little bit more. So they got to be friends. Cigars and beers, having a great time, talking life, talking uh, success and everything else. Well, as they're talking one day, he said, Hey, I don't know if you've ever interested in just finding a deeper sense of purpose and meaning to your life. I heard the speaker recently that was helpful to me. I thought you might like it too. I don't know if I'll like it or not, but if you think I'll like it, I'll come. So they went to the speaker who talked about Christianity and talked about Jesus and talked about the message of the Bible is about life and joy and peace and not being enslaved to your own anger or your own need for success. And boss like, I'm not enslaved to anything. Well, maybe I am. So I need to be independent and my need to not be enslaved by anything. Huh. He's always thought of religion as being about statues and incense and a bunch of do's and don'ts. I never thought about being about life and joy and peace. But because of my friendship with Kevin, who got me to hear about this, we began a dialogue. I began to study the Bible for the first time. And I'm still me, but I'm becoming the best version of myself. Huh. There's somebody who learned how to use cigars and, and some beers to talk life, to introduce somebody to Jesus. To go out and bring in. Jesus says, well, if, if there's still room, then I want you to compel them. Compel them to come in. And what do I mean by compel? Look what he says. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges, compel them to come in. That the house may be filled. And he gives this idea, God wants his room filled. God wants heaven filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited are going to taste of my supper. They didn't take the invitation. Go out and compel them. Now, the Bible never endorses the use of force to compel or convert people. And a lot of objections you'll hear from friends who are not Christians is, well, what about the Crusades? That's sort of the classic. No one, they, they have never read about the Crusades, by the way. They've never read a book about the Crusades. That's kind of their knee-jerk. Well, you know, I'd be a Christian one for the Crusades. So it's usually a smokescreen. But a legitimate book to address this, the narrative that Christians went and you know, threatened people to become Christians against their will, I'm not surprised when sinners sin. I have no doubt that the church has done bad things, right? We're sinners and have evil hearts. But if you ever want to read a narrative that gives maybe a counter to that, there's a historian by the name of Rodney Stark. He's a sociologist historian. Two great books to kind of counter that narrative. One is called God's Battalions, The Case for the Crusades. And he actually shows that's the opposite was happening. It was actually the, uh, the Muslim terrorists of the time were forcing conversion into Islam and stealing people's property. And the Crusades were actually people protecting people's property rights and stopping forced conversions on the other side. I'm not saying there weren't pockets of, of bad motivations, but in general, the narrative we have in this culture is very counter to the facts. And this is a footnote-heavy book giving details as to what really happened in the Crusades. Another example is a book called Bearing False Witness, Debunking Centuries of Anti-Catholic History. So that's something that you've ever wrestled with. See, compelling in the Bible is about using reason and persuasion and prayer in the Holy Spirit to draw people into God's presence, into his party. 
And notice Jesus said here, I want you to go and compel them on the highways and the hedges. Now, highways was a specific word. The Romans, when they came to power, they put in massive highways across the world. This is what it would look like if it was a subway system. These are where the actual roads were that the Romans put in place. Starting in Israel, including all of Italy, including Spain and England. Look at that road system and Africa. At the time of Jesus, there were these super highways, or highways as Jesus references, put all over the world that made it easy to transport people from place to place safely in what was called the Roman Paxa, or the Roman peace. Now, this is why Christmas and Jesus sent Jesus, well, God sent Jesus at the time he did. In Galatians chapter 4, it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son born of a woman. Now, what does the fullness of time mean? God sent Jesus at the perfect time. Let me go back 400 years and tell you what Jesus was preparing, or God was preparing. The Babylonians have destroyed Jerusalem, cut in half. The people have been taken out of their homeland. There's no more temple. So they've got to figure out how to spiritually educate themselves and others while they don't live in Jerusalem. So they invent what's called synagogues. There was no synagogues prior to the Babylonian Empire. You, you go to temple. Synagogues now were a way that people who were taken away from their homeland could spiritually educate themselves. And now there was a place that you could invite your Babylonian friends. They were called God-fearers who would come to synagogue with you to learn about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God develops this educational system for people to learn about him. The Babylonians get conquered by the Greeks. And Alexander the Great comes in, and as he's conquering the world, he forces everybody to learn a unique language, Koine Greek. And through this barbarian that Daniel had predicted in the book of Daniel, Alexander the Great makes there a universal language that people knew, and God has set up now a communication system that's going to overcome the barriers of communicating the message of God. The Romans come in and put in all those highways, and God has now put in a transportation system. So over 400 years, we get an educational system, a communication system, and a transportation system. And it's then that Jesus is born in the fullness of time, at a perfect time, that as people learn that God has come among us, that God wants to give you peace and love and joy, that it can go out as quickly as possible and spread in the known world. That's why God sent Jesus at the time he did. It would be so easy to use the highways and the byways to tell people the message. Another side note, what's the highway of our day? What do we even call the internet? The internet superhighway. It's one of the reasons why churches want to use as many tools as possible. Back to why we're putting our services on video. What are we doing? We're trying to do what Jesus said. We're trying to take the messages. So few people. I had somebody the other day say, Chad, it's so hard to find a good church. I said, let me define a good church. A place that teaches you the Bible and, how to, and what to do with it. Yeah. That's a pretty low bar, right? What does the Bible mean and what do I do with it? It's so hard to find a church like that. That's sad to me. I don't know why. But we feel like if not a lot of people are teaching the Bible and what to do with it, we want to find a way to take that message and put it on the superhighway of our day using the Internet. But he mentioned the highway. He also mentions the hedges. Now, what does he mean by taking or compelling people out of the hedges? Well, what does a hedge look like? This is actually a reconstructed hedge they found this year over in Egypt. It was evidence, they think, of the Exodus that there were nomadic sheep uh, uh, people living in Egypt. 
Just this is one of the articles that came out this year showing us some evidence for the Exodus. But this is what a hedge looked like. This one was then rebuilt. So a hedge was a place that people felt protected. And so as the sheep were in there, who else would be in a hedge but a shepherd? So Jesus is saying, I want, you, I want to call out those who are, have found safety in their hedge. I want you to call them to something new. So the hedge usually represents our comfort zone. It's the people who've been ostracized, the lame, the maimed, the, the, the kicked out. Like the shepherds were low in the totem pole in the political system of the Romans and the Greeks. But more than that, all of us have some hedge in our life that we feel comfortable with. And God is going to compel you, call you, persuade you, reason with you to say, I want to step out and, and give more than I've given before. I want to step out and find a God that I can trust, even if he asks me to have difficult conversations with people I don't have difficult conversations with. I, I want to trust that what God is going to invite me into, even if it's out of my comfort zone, my hedge, it's the best kind of life. I'm going to have to... F- face my worries or face my fears. I'm going to have to come to grips with what it means for him and his spirit to be flowing through me. Oh, I'm much safer here. I'd rather stay in the hedge. No, compel people out of the hedge. Compel people to step out and to move on. And that's why almost always compelling people is about dealing with idolatry. That hedge from all of us, even if you're a Christian, you've got a hedge. And that hedge is, what is that thing that's not God that makes you feel comfortable, your go-to thing for comfort? Oh, yeah, 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 I know, I know things aren't going well, but at least I got my status. And my status defines me. Oh, I love it when people like me. Well, I do too. But my need for people's approval is my hedge. Are you willing to have a difficult conversation? Are you willing to, to share your faith with somebody if it means that they may not approve of you? Are you willing, like our excuses early in the parable, are you willing to say, you know, I have made stuff. I have, I have, I have. More important than what God wants me to do, what God wants me to be. God is going to compel you and ask you to compel other people to step out of the thing they've defined their life by, their success, their reputation, and say, I want you to step out of your hedge and find a God that's not based on what you do for him, but what he's done for you. It's better over here. It's more acceptable when you know that you've been approved by God, but you've got to step out of your hedge. Now from that, he launches into a third phrase, the last phrase. So guys, in light of what I said at the party, I want you to count the cost. He turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, oh, this is a tough teaching, so take a deep breath. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and father and wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What in the world does that mean? Does God hate fathers? No, he tells us to honor them. Does God hate mothers? Of course not. Does God hate brothers and sisters? No, he says we actually have a, uh, the best of family in the church. We're brothers and sisters. So what does it mean to hate your brother and sister? Again, go back to what I talked about earlier. It's the idea of what you weigh. If you're weighing your oxen and your property higher than the banquet... You should so love God, so love his kingdom, so be enthralled with who he is, what he wants you to be, and being part of his kingdom, that the things you like should be considered hate compared to what you love. And if you like good things more than you love great things, and Jesus says, you need to count the cost. Your priorities are out of whack. Because compared to how you love me, you should hate everything else. 
So don't think of that as literally hate as much as weighing priorities. That what I have for you is great. And there's going to be times, especially in those days, you're going to have to decide between are you going to choose me in my kingdom or are you going to be ostracized from your family? And many people around the world, when they choose Jesus, they lose their mother and their father and their brother and their sister. Many of our Muslim friends who come to know Jesus, this is exactly what they do. Is they say, oh my goodness, if I want this, I'm going to lose a lot. And Jesus says, consider the cost. What I'm calling to you is risky and it's expensive. Whoever does not bear his cross, sacrifice, give of himself, give big of himself, swallow their pride, and does not come after me and follow the way of sacrifice that I have for you, you cannot be my disciple. You're not going to fully experience the abundant life. Which of you, by the way, think about this, this works in the natural world, he says, which of you, when you intend to build a tower, you don't, you don't, you, you don't just wing it, you first sit down and you count the cost, whether you have enough to finish it. Lest, after you've laid the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone around you begins to mock you saying, ha ha, this guy tried to build and wasn't able to finish it. And usually when we consider the cost, we consider one side of the equation. What's God asking me to do? I don't want to swallow my pride and have that conversation. What's God asking me to do? Give percentages of my income to his work? What does that mean we're not going to do? What does that mean? Well, here's a good reason why we shouldn't do it. We count the cost of the things that we do or don't want to do and, and talk ourselves out of even thinking about it. But considering the cost is also, what is God asking me to do? But I also consider the cost of what is God offering to me? Look at the banquet. How often have you gotten later in life and looked back and said, why was I so worried about that thing three years ago or five years ago? Why did I make that such a big deal? You weighed that anxiety. You weighed that sacrifice so big. And then later on you went, I wish I had stepped into that further. I wish I would gotten married sooner. Why do we wait so long? You were considering the cost. But you weren't seeing the benefits of marriage, the benefits of what God had for you. So considering the cost, it's not only weighing the sacrifice God's asked of you and looking at it, am I really committed to this? But two, when I compare what he's asking me to give up compared to what he's offering, treasures in heaven, joint heir with Christ, peace eternal, eternal life and relationship with God for eternity, whatever short-term sacrifice is nothing compared to long-term gain. The riches in heaven where moth cannot touch and rust cannot touch and I've been wrestling with and struggling with the funny money that's here on earth and the time and talent I have and whether or not I should be giving it to to God's kingdom. Then he switches to another metaphor. Just like a guy who builds a tower, you want to consider the cost. He says, think of it like a, a guy going to war. What king going to war against another king doesn't sit down first and consider whether you're able to win? And if you have 10,000 men and you're about to go up to somebody who has 20,000 men, what do you do? Before he can see how small your army is, you make a deal. Hey, uh, you send a garrison to say, hey, let's work out a deal. You know, I don't want to kill my, I got a huge army, by the way, bigger than yours. Uh, but uh, how about we make a deal? You negotiate. Now, we think we have so much to offer God. Oh, God, I got so much to offer you. No, you don't. No, you don't. Your good deeds and your good works are filthy rags. You're not coming with 10,000 to God's 20,000. You're coming with like one compared to God's 2 million. It's time to negotiate. God, all the negotiating power is on your side. 
I want to surrender. I want to surrender. I've counted the cost. My good works are not going to get me where I need to go. They just produce pride and arrogance and, and fear. Have I ever done enough in my life? What you're offering is favor. You negotiate. And Jesus references not this number at the top of his head, like, yeah, 10,000, 20,000. He's actually referencing a current event. Here's the current event. It's very interesting. Um, Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill baby Jesus, divides his kingdom into four parts. Two of those guys take the name Herod, which is why it's confusing. Herod Philip, which Caesarea Philippi is named after, and Herod Antipas. Well, Philip has a wife, Herodias, and apparently she's pretty, uh, pretty attractive or pretty sought after because Philip finds that his brother Antipas steals his wife. So he decides to go get his wife back. So he gets an army, and guess how many people are in the army? 10,000. And he's on his way to go get his wife back. He's heading down south to Israel. And on his way to get his wife back, apparently Antipas really liked his new wife, Philip's old wife. So he raised an army of 20,000. And Philip was humiliated. So Jesus references here a current event in his day to say, you know what, don't be like Philip. You've stolen people's wives. You've looked lustfully at other people. You've been unkind. You've been unloving. You've done bad things. And you've got no negotiating power with God except surrender. Surrender to him. And now everything you own is yours. There's no like, well, God, I'll give you a little bit. It's all his. You surrendered it all. So count the cost to living a life of service and coming to the supper and banquet and making your life about bringing other people to the banquet. And that's what he ends by saying. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all, compared to how much you love the kingdom, you can't be your disciple. Salt is good, but if your salt loses its flavor, how can it be seasoned again? No, no, no. Lack of salt, lack of penetration, lack of ability to persuade others or reason others or, or talk about why your faith matters to you, it's neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill. Men throw it out, that kind of salt. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does God want us to hear? He wants to dine with us. There's no excuse for missing supper. So this Christmas season, confess your excuses. Call them for what they are. Look at your whole life as an excuse to go out and bring in and compel the excluded by serving them and sharing faith with them. And consider the cost of giving big percentages of your life away to God's work because he gave all of himself at Christmas to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for the challenge and the conviction of it that you've invited us to this party and you want to dine with us this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen. As you go out, speaking of nine Christmas Eve services, we have tickets available still for the nine and the six and the seven. If you have tickets you're not going to use, please bring them back. We have no Saturday service next weekend. And we are going to have those nine services. They are on the hour if you come on Sundays. They are not at 8.50. 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and 11 o'clock, different times. And then we have six services on Christmas Eve. We'd love to see you there. Bring your friends. We'll see you all this weekend. Thanks again.